Hoffman was what some would call a loner. With a history of burglary and arson, this ex-convict would allow his desperate times and extreme obsession with trees to turn him into a mass murderer in 2010. What started as a simple burglary to Matthew turned into a gruesome murder of two women and an 11-year-old boy by accident. Or so that's what he says. But what doesn't add up is why he kidnapped and essayed a 13-year-old girl who saw him murder her family and took her back to his home of horrors, which was completely covered with leaves. Did Matthew truly not mean to harm this family and forever traumatize this young teen? Or did his sick obsessions lead him to these horrific crimes? This episode discusses kidnapping and sexual assault of a child. Welcome to An Easy, a podcast hosted by Lexi and Cecilia. This podcast is a collection of research based on haunting and mysterious events that will leave you feeling genuinely uneasy. Discretion is advised. Matthew Hoffman was born in 1980 in Warren, Ohio to his parents Robert and Patricia Hoffman. There's not a whole lot of information on his past, but some sources suggested there may have been some sort of trauma that affected his mental state leading into his adulthood. However, it is noted that he was a quiet kid, but never came across as dangerous, and he had a large fascination with trees and leaves. Although this is different than normal child obsessions, it was nothing alarming or seen as anything out of the ordinary. When Matthew was 21, he was sentenced to eight years in prison in 2001 for arson, burglary, and theft following setting a townhome development on fire in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. He set the homes on fire in an attempt to cover up a burglary, causing damage of $2 million to 10 units. He then stole a vehicle as well, where he put all of his stolen items from the homes that he had robbed into the vehicle and then abandoned the car in a retail lot. He was sentenced to eight years in prison for his guilty plea to first-degree arson and four years for the second-degree burglary and first-degree aggravated motor vehicle theft charges. The judge also said during his trial that the sentences would essentially run at the same time and that he didn't want to make them too long as he really wanted Matthew to have hope while he was in prison and take advantage of the programs that are offered while you're in prison. When he got out, he spent at least five years on parole and he was ordered to pay restitution for the damage of the fire he caused, which again was $2 million, so a pretty hefty restitution bill. How is he ever expected to pay that back? I feel like that's just causing him to burglarize someone else. Right. It kind of sets him up to be in this position where he's really troubled and searching for money. And that's exactly where he was um, in 2010. He had a really troubled life. He owed $2 million in restitution. Um, so making money was a big concern for him. It was also reported that during this year, him and his girlfriend had broken up because she accused him of choking her, but there wasn't a whole lot of information um, that I could find that backed up that, but I did find it in some sources and thought it was interesting to include. He lost his job at a tree trimming company as well. Do you take that job because he loves trees? He did. And his boss kind of realized that Matthew was sort of lying about his abilities to actually perform the job of trimming trees. It was almost like he worked there because he wanted to be around them. 
Um, and it was also noted that his dog ran away that year as well. So he's down kind of bad. yeah, he's kind of down on his luck. Um, neighbors described him as a weird loner, often hanging out in trees, watching over the houses near him from a hammock. And he was even seen to kill squirrels and bring them back to his house um, from his backyard. So very odd neighbor to have. What's interesting, though, is like whenever people start killing small animals, then it often escalates into something bigger. I know. And I mean, I know people who eat squirrels. Like, I think it's... Because you're from the sticks. I am from the sticks. But I think that it stemmed from his obsession with trees and leaves more than it stemmed from I'm a avid hunter and I'm killing food to eat to survive type thing. Well, was he living in the city killing squirrels or was he living in like the sticks killing squirrels? He had neighbors that could see him watching their children from his hammock. So I believe the suburbs. Which is not normal to like kill. Right. It's odd. That's like going out like on a school campus and killing a, a squirrel on the quad <laughs> and killing one of the quad squirrels it it's yeah it was very odd and that's all that really people had to say about him they didn't say um i was worried he was going to come over to my house and murder me they just thought he was the weird neighbor on november 9th 2010 matthew positioned himself in the woods outside tina herman's home after parking his car about a mile away in Apple Valley, Mount Vermont, Ohio. This is a very small town northeast of the state capital, Columbus, and there's reportedly a very low crime rate. The home was pretty isolated with only a few neighbors around, making it less of a risky target for burglary. He set up a sleeping bag and waited until the morning. Once the kids, Cody Mannard and Sarah Herman, went to school and Tina, their mother, left for the store, Matthew broke into the home and waited for them to return on the 10th. So does he have any connection to this family? Like, who was his family to him? He doesn't know this family. So Tina was a single mom who had two kids, Sarah, who's 13, and Cody, 11. She could never really make it work with her ex-husband, Larry, but Larry was still involved in their lives. Um, and she was actually looking to move houses at the time. She worked a steady job at the Dairy Queen in Mount Vernon and was due to start her shift that day at 4 p.m. Um, and she was very respected at her job and her coworkers really liked her. But she does, like, if she's working at Dairy Queen and she's a single mom and he needs money, it just wouldn't be my first choice, especially if he doesn't know this family. I would probably choose, like, a really affluent family. Right. I think he probably sees that the home is really isolated and it allowed him to kind of camp out um, and watch when they were leaving. Um, so it's less risky for him. Having already been in jail, he's probably a little bit more cautious about what targets he's picking just to make sure that he's not being caught again. He was actually able to break in through a garage door that was not completely closed. And the police do believe that he did not target this family, but saw the opportunity with the home being isolated, the cracked garage door. When Tina returned home, Matthew attacked her, dragging her into a bedroom and stabbing her several times, leaving her dead at the scene. What he did not expect was Tina's friend, Stephanie Sprang, to be coming by to meet Tina at the house that day. Stephanie was Tina's neighbor and friend and was actually planning on helping her move to a new place 
and was often at the home, so it wasn't really unusual given their relationship for her to just come over. Um, And she had no idea that Matthew was inside doing what he was doing. Stephanie unknowingly entered the home and was met by Matthew, who brutally stabbed her to death and continued to do so even after she was dead, which shows a lot of anger and brutality towards the victim. That's just so extreme for someone that's never killed someone before and breaking into a home to just burglarize it. Right. And, you know, it's not reported that he stabbed Tina like that over and over again. So it almost makes me feel like he was mad that he was like surprised by a second person coming into the home and he was like almost taking that anger out on the victim. What is really sad about this case, buckle up, Matthew then turned on the family dog. The dog was obviously barking. Tina is dead. There's another woman dead and there's a strange man in the house. So the dog is barking and he was scared that the dog would alert neighbors. Um, So he um, ended up killing the family dog as well. That's so sad. Such an innocent bystander. Such an innocent bystander who was obviously barking because the humans that he loves um, are hurt. So very sad. He then took the three, Tina, Stephanie, and the family dog to the bathroom where he proceeded to dismember them one by one. He placed the bodies in trash bags and by the time he was doing that, Tina's two kids returned home. As soon as they entered the home, Matthew attacked Cody, age 11, with a knife, stabbing him in the back of the head and killing him instantly. Again, he stabbed Cody repeatedly after the initial attack. So these two unexpected people coming back into the home, he's showing a lot of anger towards them, which I think is an important pattern to highlight. Matthew then chases 13-year-old Sarah, who just watched her little brother being brutally murdered, into her bedroom. He proceeded to tie her up with the fan cord in her room, and he gagged Sarah and threw her in the back of Stephanie's car, drove to his own car about a mile away, and transported Sarah from Stephanie's car to his own and then to his home. So what makes Sarah so special? Because he's killed two women at this point and a young boy. So why not add a fourth person to this? So... Some sources speculate that Sarah may have been the target the whole time, but honestly, there's no real evidence to support that. Um, It's more of a conspiracy surrounding the case. Um, You'll see that later in his writings um, that he said that he just couldn't bring himself to hurt Sarah, um, which is kind of contradictory of what actually happens. Matthew's home was covered in leaves there were grocery bags filled with leaves and then connected to the wall almost in a brick-like pattern and there were also leaves all over the ground piles of leaves to the point where you could not even see the flooring so just think of like when your dad is raking up leaves in the yard and you're a little kid to jump into piles of leaves that is what is in this man's house when you walk in the door is it possible that because those are really fun moments that i feel like a lot of kids have in the fall time of their childhood so is it possible that he was kind of longing for like those moments in life because if he had a bad childhood then i don't like, know. reaching for something or he's just a creep 
I don't know because the vibes that I picked up about his obsession with leaves and trees were more of a inappropriate route than a childhood nostalgia route. When Matthew arrived at the home with Sarah, he threw her in a bathroom. Matthew was exhausted from his killing spree and decided to take a little nap, but he feared that Sarah would get away, so he tied himself to her while he slept. While he was sleeping, Sarah was horrified by her surroundings, and honestly, I would be so confused if I was brought to a home that was filled with leaves and um, the walls even have plastic bags that are filled with leaves. It's just everywhere. I mean, because even as, like, a kid learning about different, like, serial killers and murderers and, like, the world and different things that people do in their own homes, no one ever talks about... Leaves. A guy gluing leaves to his walls and plastic bags. Yeah. And you're already... She's probably already so just in shock. You just saw your brother get killed. You don't know... I don't think at this point she knows if her mom is dead. And so she is also now being kidnapped. She has no idea what's about to happen to her. And just icing on the cake, little cherry on top. Oh, you're in a house of horrors with a bunch of leaves everywhere. I just can't even imagine. Matthew actually decided to go back to the Hermans' home to steal their truck to go purchase gasoline to burn the home down. The truck stalls, so he abandons it in a parking lot and then doesn't go through with burning the house down at that time. You may notice that this is actually really closely tied to his crime in Steamboat Springs. He stole a vehicle that was at the scene of the crime, and he also burnt down the scene of the crime in order to cover it up. But obviously, he was caught for arson, but... Which, like, almost seems so silly that he would even go back to the house to, like, go through this plan because, like, cops do know now that that's his signature. Right. Like, if, if they're if looking for suspects. House right. for the reason of it being, like, not located near anything, why would you go and do the exact actions that got you caught last time? I know. It's not very smart. Um, so after the truck stalls and he abandons it, he goes back home and he decides to keep Sarah in the crawl space and she's there for three days. It was cold, covered in leaves, and it was almost exactly like his home above but basement form. So even worse than you could imagine the home was. Um, she was left on a homemade bed of leaves where she was raped and only fed rotten food. She had a diaper taped to her, unable to clean herself for the duration of these three days. It's almost like this bed is his, like, like his, like, playground of sorts. Yeah. You know, like, a, it's in a way of, like, worshiping about. someone. Like, it's, like, his temple for a victim. And that's why it's, like, hard for me not to believe that he wasn't planning on keeping Sarah this whole time. But there's already a bed made for her. That's what I was saying, where I don't think it's childhood nostalgia. I think it, he has, like, a very sick obsession with trees. Um, and... For him, I think that he wants to act like this wasn't planned, but it's really hard to pull off a kidnapping that's not planned. So that's my only reservation around it, around the suspected that he may have been targeting, whether it be Sarah or any young girl. Um, that's my only kind of reservation with it, is that kidnapping is really hard to pull off if you have... A, no experience or haven't thought about it at all. 
And you said that he camped out beside this house. So he knew exactly how many kids were there. He Mm -hmm. saw Sarah. The night before. The night before. So he knew that he was either going to kill her or do something else with her. Right. I mean, like I said, the police say that they don't think that he targeted this family um, or this home in general, but he they just saw it as an opportunity situation. Meanwhile, while all of this is going on at Matthew's home, Tina's boss actually called the police to do a welfare check on Tina, who did not show up for work on the 10th. When the police arrived, they saw that all the lights were off and there was no answer, so they assumed that they just simply weren't home which is the case a lot of times in welfare checks. The next day, on the 11th, another woman is reported missing in this small town with a reportedly low crime rate, Stephanie Spring, who is also a victim of Matthew, and remember she is Tina's friend who came over and surprised Matthew. Tina's boss at Dairy Queen decided to go to the house herself after hearing the news of Stephanie Spring, and then she decided to let herself in when nobody answered. She immediately called the police when she walked in the home. The 911 tapes are very chilling, but she reports seeing blood everywhere inside. Um, And when the police got there, there were no bodies in the home. So they're dealing with um, an empty kind of crime scene other than the blood that's there. You may be wondering how Matthew actually became a suspect in this case. He was found sitting in his car near the abandoned Herman family truck that he left in the parking lot after it stalled. It's like he's not a good like criminal. <laughs> he does the same like he tries to do the same actions I get him caught the first time and then he can't let go of this truck, which is so weird. Right. So when the police saw this random guy by himself chilling in the parking lot where they're investigating the truck because you know they're trying to look for either a missing person or a murder investigation so they're going to look at every loose end including finding the family's abandoned truck so when they questioned him that night matthew said that he was waiting on his girlfriend to get off work but he still stayed on the police's radar um what he was really doing was he was trying to take the truck back to the herman's home and burn the home down just like his original plan before the truck stalled out. But because obviously the police are now on his trail, it forced him to abandon that plan. Investigators found a Walmart bag in the Herman's home with two tarps and a box of 55-gallon trash bags. They went on to watch the security footage from the Walmart in which those items were purchased and linked the man who bought the bags, Matthew Hoffman, to the car that he was driving, a Toyota Yaris, to the random man who was lurking near the abandoned truck that night. So he was caught in 4K on video, literally buying what he used at the scene of the crime. That's what I'm saying again. It's like he stalked them all night. He spent the night out, like in front of their home. He tries burning down this place, but you have no actual like thought process into covering up his crimes. It shows that he's super chaotic about it, um, which almost makes me kind of believe the story that he kind of decided to do this last minute when he he may have truly been just trying to burglarize this home. That was his original plan. Nonetheless, that's not what happened. But 
just to not have the thought to take the Walmart bag and receipt with you and the items that you brought with you or, you know, it's just... It's sloppy. It's very sloppy. They also knew that due to footprints outside the home, that a man or woman with a seven and a half size shoe would be their suspect. Following, he has baby feet. He does have baby feet. That's a very small men's shoe. <laughs> Following the lead from the Walmart footage, the police looked for all Toyota Yaris's in the county and compared imagery to their owners to that of the man on the Walmart tapes. A quick search history was then done and his background in burglaries came up on that search history list and he was then their top suspect. The police raided the home three days after Sarah arrived there and found her on that bed of leaves. On November 14th, 2010 at 8am, they saw the state of the home as soon as they got there and the police actually feared that when they entered the home, he was hiding bodies under all those piles of leaves. So that's like that's how tall they were. They were scared that he was a mass murderer of some sort that was hiding all these bodies under all the leaves. I feel like that means that he had to even like go to parks or go to other places and like pick up leaves because most people don't have that many leaves in their backyard, right. especially living in a subdivision. Right. And like bring them back with him. Do to do. Bring in a bag of leaves back with me. They also found a freezer with only dead squirrels and popsicles inside. And um, snack. yeah, just a little snack of squirrels and popsicles, healthy, rounded diet. They found Sarah in the basement and she was returned to her father later that day. When Sarah was released, she actually asked to be taken back to school because she was worried she was missing her work. That's so sad. And I think that shows, like, at such a young age, people don't understand kind of, like, the situation at their end. Children don't understand death a lot of the time, especially at such no. a young age. So for her to just want to go back to, like, the normal schedule and routine that she was in, like, it shows that she, like, couldn't process what was happening to her. No, I definitely don't think that anybody could process immediately what had happened to them, but especially somebody at that age... I can't even imagine what she was going through. Matthew refused to reveal where he hid the bodies until they offered a deal of taking the death penalty off the table. When um, he was actually there in the room with police, he was very quiet. They taped hours of conversations with, with him where they were trying to have a conversation and he was just sitting there silent. Um, and they were basically begging for him to reveal where these bodies were. And he didn't even speak until they took that death penalty off the table. He revealed that he dumped the bodies in a hollow tree about 35 feet in the air. There was a hole at the top of the tree where he threw them in. The authorities said that they probably would have never found these victims if he wouldn't have said anything. And in the documents that they released showing the taped hours of conversation with Hoffman saying little to nothing. He revealed that it was actually a bad dream that prompted him to confess. Hoffman told an investigator that he had a dream about being at a food processing plant and that he was in the dream opening trash bags and there being body parts and that he got a knot in his stomach and it all came back to him. 
Hoffman asked an investigator to allow him to write the location of the bodies on a piece of paper and then shoot him in a fake escape attempt. So he basically was like, hey, dude, I'll tell you where this is, but let me act like I'm escaping. Can you please just like end it and shoot me so I don't have to go through with any of this? That's so weird. So weird. Yeah, he like legitimately remorseful. He's feeling guilty about like what he did or... I don't know because obviously the police didn't agree to that and he kind of got mad and just got quiet for two more days before admitting where the bodies were. So this was before he ever like even told them. I think he just like didn't want to deal with it. I think he just wanted to be done. I think he probably thought I'm going to get like I don't want to be in jail forever. I also think he didn't couldn't process like human interaction that well. So talking to police officers for 35 hours like that was so overwhelming for him i mean it seems like the trees were his companion in life and he didn't really know how to like talk to other people so i wonder if that was like so overwhelming that he just like came crashing down it was like the best way out is death yeah i'm not sure but i had never heard of a case where they just asked for the police just to go ahead and shoot them i thought that was interesting um he claims completely to the police and even today um that this was a burglary gone wrong and that he never meant to hurt any of them and that he just panicked i read over some excerpts of his confession documents and it seems as if matthew hoffman was a bit out of touch with what truly happened that day and the crimes that he committed as there just wasn't it almost seemed like a fake sense of remorse like he wasn't trying to really connect to what he was writing in a way He recounts the sense of excitement that he got from being in someone's home when they're not there and recalls just looking for anything of value. And he states in his confession that he was completely surprised by Tina and Stephanie coming into the home. And after killing them, he walked around the house in disbelief. But he he slid in there that he also killed the dog because it wouldn't stop barking. He states in his confession he just could not bring himself to kill Sarah and writes that he treated her well while she was there, stating that he cooked for her, allowed her to play games, watch movies, even sleeping with his arm around her. Was he delusional? Yeah, all of this is clearly a lie. Um, And, I mean, Sarah is able to attest to that. She is a survivor of this man, so she can attest to it. And I think her trauma state and physical state when she was found speaks otherwise. I don't know if he was trying to feel better about himself or what, but obviously that is not the case. He did not treat her well. He said that he planned on letting her have more and more freedom until she just ran away, which sort of lines up with what Sarah has stated as she recalls Matthew saying that he would let her go by Christmas. So I'm not really sure if he was trying to groom her to eventually like him and want to stay because if you're telling them that you're going to give them the freedom to kind of do more and more and build that up I'm not sure what he was thinking with just letting her go I think his actions are very confusing because it's not like what a typical serial killer like does or like the way they think if he truly had no plans and I think he was just going day by day with Sarah and was like, I kidnapped this girl. Like, what do I actually do with her now? Yeah, I think so too. Because 
these are his only victims. He wasn't, he had no prior experience with killing anybody. You know, he didn't kill anybody when he burned down those houses. Um, so this is all new to him. He also claims that he did not know this family or anyone involved and did not go into the house to kill them. And he only chose to dismember the bodies to make the process easier. So all of that was in his confession files. Psychologists have called the obsession with leaves unique and bizarre compared to other convicted murderers. Some speculate that he may have had a bit of a too close relationship with trees. It certainly suggests that he is likely to be mentally ill. Mentally ill as compared to other killers who show up in the news like serial killers or psychopaths. That's a quote from Dr. N.G. Burrill, director of New York Center of Neuropsychology and Forensic Behavioral Science. He also went on to say that serial killers, from professional points of view, they are not mentally ill. They have character disturbances, but they know what they're doing is wrong. They take too much pleasure, too much gratification to stop. He also said that only Hoffman could explain why he appeared to stockpile leaves and that it would take talking to him to figure out what really was behind all of his elaborate delusions related to trees, what trees produce, and being in and around trees, and also putting people in trees. Matthew was sentenced to life without parole on January 6, 2011. He pleaded guilty to 10 felonies, including aggravated murder and rape. He serves his time in Ohio and reportedly has had a hard time in prison, having panic attacks and not really speaking about the murders. He is considered a level three inmate and requires close supervision, which is for people who have or are more likely to be involved in disruptive prison behavior. Whether or not this truly was a random burglary that went terribly wrong, or if Matthew went into this with the intent of killing Tina, Stephanie, and Cody, one can only imagine the amazing, beautiful lives that they would have been able to live if Matthew had not entered through that cracked garage door that day. Sarah's life will be forever changed from the impact her kidnapper, rapist, and murderer of her family has had on her. It is my hope, and I'm sure the hope of many, that she at least has gotten a glimpse of healing in the time since this crime occurred. As for Matthew, he will live out the rest of his life in prison, unable to burglarize and terrorize more people and away from his beloved trees. Next week on Uneasy, we discuss the gruesome murder of the infamous Black Dahlia, whose death took America by storm in the 1940s. Over 500 people have come forward confessing to her murder, but will we ever know who her true killer was? Mm-hmm.